listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to the podcast again. Firstly, I just want to say that I really appreciate everyone's kind words, tweets, emails and reviews, so please keep them coming. I read and reply to every one of them and I love getting that feedback for the show, so thank you so much. Secondly, I just want to give all listeners a bit of a heads up regarding a change that's coming to the show. Every year that I run the pod, I have to pay a significant amount of money for hosting, bandwidth, storage, the website, etc. As the podcast popularity goes up, so did the cost due to the number of downloads. As such, to ensure that the podcast is always available free to loyal and new listeners, I'm going to be moving to a sponsorship model pretty soon. This will basically involve ad reads at the beginning or end of each episode and is pretty common practice in the podcasting world. Other than that, nothing else will change and every episode will always be available via the same method in which you downloaded this one. So if you own a business and are looking to promote it effectively using a podcast, please reach out to me either via Twitter or through the contact section of the show's webpage, both of which I'll add to the show notes of this episode. The Rugby Coaches Corner podcast can also offer a precise demographic for your product. So if you feel advertising via podcast is for you and your business, please get in touch with me to discuss. For now though, sit back and enjoy this episode with Stuart Lancaster. I've been really excited about this one for a while now, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did recording it. And just another heads up too, I completely butchered the intro here for Stuart in this episode, and I uh, want to say special thanks to him for being so patient with me on this one. Uh, see if you can spot my numerous errors. Okay, welcome to episode number 74 of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and joining me today is Stuart Lancaster. Stuart is a former school teacher and is now senior coach at Leinster in the Pro 14. From Yorkshire originally, he headed up England between 2008 and 2011 and has had many coaching roles, including those with Leeds and the RFU as Elite Rugby Director. It's a pleasure to have him on the show, so welcome, Stuart. No, thank you, Andrew. Just a slight correction. Um, yeah. So I was I joined the RFU in 2007 and did the Head of Elite Player Development role uh, and the Saxons coach until 2011. Uh, right, and okay. then I was the uh, head coach uh 2011 to 2015 right okay do you want me to redo that no 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 it's fine yeah. that's true <laughs> okay. this is one mine yeah yeah sweet sweet cool okay well touching on that then when when did you actually first start coaching and what was that uh what was that experience like so uh i guess i was a teacher first of all so mm. i was uh i went to i did a sports science degree when i was uh, left left school yeah uh and then did that for three years and then i did a pgce a teacher training degree um when i was 21 Okay. And this is in the early 90s. And then that led me into teaching, to be honest. I taught uh, PE at a school in Wakefield, um, West Yorkshire, in England, and um, did that between the ages of 21 and 30. Um, so between 2001, uh, sorry, 90, uh, 91 to 2000, and obviously the game of rugby went professional mm. uh, in 95, and I was playing at the time. So I got paid to play a little bit. Uh, I took a sabbatical from teaching. Um, I went full time for a year, which ironically was actually not a particularly enjoyable time. I much preferred being busy all the time and being a teacher. Uh, and then I got injured that year as well. So I went back 
uh, to school. Um, the sabbatical ended. Um, but at that time, I got offered the academy manager's job at uh, the club I was playing at, um, Leeds. Mm. And um, it sort of all sort of grew from there, really. So I was 30 when I started. But I'd done my level two and level three before then. Right. Uh, I think I did my level three coaching award when I was 28. Um, so I was on the, you know, being a teacher, I was on the pathway to coaching and obviously becoming the academy manager meant I, I went into a full-time coaching role, albeit there was part of leadership and management in building and setting up an academy as well. Right. Okay. Um, being, being a teacher myself, I've got a, a, a natural favoritism to coaches who are teachers also. Uh, what, what do you, uh, what do you, what do you feel are the big advantages for those who have come from the teaching profession and also coach at the same time? Uh, I think there's, there's huge advantages, uh, if I'm being honest. I think going going right back to the start, I was very lucky and I was taught the fundamentals of teaching, which essentially is coaching, really. Mm, yeah. uh, you know, the ability to communicate, to inspire, to motivate, to come up with session content, to plan a session, do a session, review the session. Um, so I was taught by some very good um, teacher trainers. Uh, mm-hmm. And when you do teacher training, you get videoed a lot you know, with microphones on and you begin to pick up verbal tics that you might have or positioning things that you get wrong or uh, how you can learn to discipline a group or motivate a group or um, communicate to a group. So there's lots of little tips you get taught as a teacher on teacher training. And then um, you then spend, well, then you spend eight to nine years doing it, you know, lots. So, you know, a typical day you, you plan your badminton session, you teach badminton um, 50 minutes later, that lesson finishes then you've got basketball, then you've got football, then you've got badminton again, and then you've got mm. rugby, mm. and that's Monday. Yeah. So you do it five, you do it five, five times a day, five days a week, really. Um, and it's that plan your session. Okay, that didn't go that well. That drill worked well. I didn't handle that situation that effectively. Um, I'll probably do this next time. That's coming my follow up. And uh, you're just doing it all the time. You know, you do it five days, five days, five times a day, five days a week. 35 weeks of the year um so just the the volume of coaching and teaching that you do without doubt prepares you and you learn by making mistakes you know as many and you know the mistakes mm. they're not they're not terminal you know if you're teaching a year seven badminton class and the <laughs> overhead things go as well as you want yeah. um uh so it's a relatively safe ground to develop your skills so then so then when you go to coaching you know, the art of communication and um, the basics of coaching you've already got inside you, as opposed to, say, a player who goes into coaching who's maybe played at the highest level. That's the bit they don't have. You know, they've obviously mm. got the technical content, but it's the it's the other bits and pieces of coaching that actually I think is the difference anyway. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, and I, I, I had Andy Friend on uh, a couple of episodes ago, and he referred to it as having uh, time in the saddle. And yeah. I couldn't agree more. You you you're in an environment that's not really high pressure uh, and you, you get to make a lot of mistakes and correct those. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Okay. Um, so jumping forward now, um, your, your England experience has been pretty well publicized and, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to dig too deep in that because um, finding mastery, the podcast you did on that was fantastic. And you, you go through that really well. So I'll put that in the show notes. Um, what what I am curious about is is the big lessons from that England experience. How what how did that transfer into the su- success you're having at Leinster? What were some of the, the the rocks that you think have had a had an effect on you know a really successful time at Leinster? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the time with England was 
pretty full on, you know, it was after 2011 World Cup and uh, Martin Johnson resigned and I took over. And at the time in the RFU, there was no CEO, there was no chairman, dysfunctional board, commercial partners were walking away, um, no trust between club and country, really. Mm. So the England job, you know, whilst my title was head coach, it was, it was a very broad job and a lot of things needed um, working on um, during that period. And... Um, uh, so I learned a huge amount. Obviously, when you're playing against the best teams in the world as well, you know, you're playing against New Zealand were fantastic around that time. Yeah. South Africa, very strong. Australia were very strong. You know, even the home nations, you know, whilst um, we managed to, to do well in the Six Nations, you know, there was still that tribal rivalry that would bring the best out of Wales or Scotland or France, whoever. So, you know, it was a, it was a great, steep learning experience as a coach. Um, but also, I probably did less hands-on coaching than uh, I've done at any other time in my career uh, mm. because of the nature of the job. It meant there was a lot more leadership and managerial stuff that needed doing as well as the coaching. And obviously, being an international coach does mean you've got less time on the saddle, as we've just yeah. described. You know, there's less games, there's less sessions. Um, but I learned a huge amount. And uh, um, one thing for certain after the World Cup finished in 2015 – yeah, I made myself a promise, having spent all my career, you know, in a tracksuit coaching, that I was going to spend more time doing that again. Yeah. And I was just very lucky that when Leinster, the opportunity came up, it wasn't for the number one position that Leo had. It was for actually a head coach they were looking for. Um, so it allowed me to part the experience I had in terms of leadership management, not forget about it and not, you know, never use it, but but get the balance more back into the coaching side of, you know, what I've what I've developed. So so I think. Obviously, as a coach, I think I've been able to obviously coach England 50 times, bring experience to, to Leinster. I think that's been one thing. I think uh, I'm coaching both sides of the ball, so attack and defence, mm. which is quite unique. So that's been um, beneficial for me. Um, I've been able to sort of support and challenge Leo, you know, with leadership and management, stuff that I'd learned along the way, and uh, try and help develop leadership within the playing group. Um, so... Yeah, it's a huge amount, a huge amount I've taken into Leinster, and but there was already a very strong IP in Leinster anyway. You know, yeah. uh, they'd been by Joe Schmidt, Michael Checker, they'd won the European Cup three times. You know, there's a group of players who are all in the Ireland squad now. You know, Johnny Sexton's and Rob Carney's and Sean O'Brien's and Jamie Heaslips of this world. You know, there were you know lots of lions in their squad, and so I, I probably learned as much as I gave as well. If I'm being honest, yeah, uh, and. Uh, so it's been a really good fit. You know, the first year we lost in two semifinals, the European Cup semifinal and the Pro 14. Mm -hmm. And then the second year, you know, we did the double, we won the European Cup and then the Pro 14. And then this year, obviously, just lost against Saracens, but then the Glasgow in the Pro 14 final. So, yeah, we've had good success. And um, we're just getting going into pre-season now, actually, funnily enough. You know, it's second day of pre-season. crazy. <laughs> uh, we've got... Uh, we've got about 18 lads in the island camps. So they're not here. So we've got a really young group at the moment. We're... We're developing experience back to basics. So it's great for me today to actually just be out there going through the basics of catch pass, you know, running lines, um, decision making, et cetera, with a younger group. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And one of the things I remember when you um, were announced uh, with Leinster, one of the things you, you you were saying was you wanted the players to be comfortable in chaos. Um, I, I love yeah. that term. And, you know, I think that's, you know, describes rugby pretty, pretty accurately. Um, what, 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 what do you mean by that? And what, what would that look like in a practice session where you're, where you're trying to make them uh, get comfortable in chaos? 
Well, I just I just feel that there is there's a lot of coaching that takes place that's very structured and very starter play orientated. Mm-hmm. So a lot of time gets invested into you know what's our three phase sequence that's going to result in a try. And you know when you actually break the game down, that actually forms only a very small portion of eighty minutes. Um, and I just felt uh, Leinster we needed to be better at the unstructured part of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my start point was really about keeping the ball alive, you know, trying to avoid rooks where possible, um, uh, playing an offloading game, having a face play structure that allowed us to create challenges to the defence, but not so rigid that we couldn't flex within it. Mm. So um, so it wasn't actually the point I started with. The point I started with, when I started, it was September uh, 2016. Mm. Um, it was the fence I started with um, uh, because I felt we needed to get that bit right before we could build on the attack. So, mm. But when the attack piece really began to take shape, and we scored, I think we scored the most tries in Europe over the last three years. We scored 99 tries this season. I think we scored 80 last season. So, you know, we've definitely um, found different ways to, to challenge defences, and a lot of it's to do with that that sense of being comfortable in chaos. So the ability to have um, a basic structure uh, that the players can use, but use at high speed, um, where decision making has been uh, time, decision making time has been restricted, mm. uh, fatigue's been set in, and it's almost that unconscious competence. So we know we know our flow. We, we know we know what's going to happen when, and uh, the players can read each other's cues. And we do a lot of work. A lot of the training sessions, if you were to watch, would be a lot of twelve on twelve, you know, fifteen on fifteen, mm-hmm. ten on ten. Um, Lots of changes of attack and defence, lots of uh, lift-touch games, lots of retreat-touch games, lots of offload-touch games, mm-hmm. um, all getting more and more challenging as the players get more and more used to the phase-play system that we're we're implementing. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one thing I've noticed uh, as a as a fan watching from afar is uh, the last three years the development of the offloading game that Leinster's uh, brought. It's uh, it's 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 been great to watch and is definitely uh, pretty potent when it when it's on. Yeah, we we played. I remember as a I played in my when I first started playing the um, senior rugby. I went to a club called Wakefield mm-hmm. Rugby Union, who were a fantastic attacking team at that time. And I went there for three years. It's only now when I look back <coughs> and I think about why that was. Obviously, there was good players there, but they played this game called Morley Touch, and basically it was um, touch and pass game. And uh, if you were touched by one person, you could carry on running. Mm. Uh, and on the second touch, you know, you had to play the ball and, you know, away you went. Um, if you if you got touched by one person and you were approaching the trial and you weren't allowed to score the try, um, you had to pass to someone else. But essentially what it promoted was pushing on the play and um, keeping the ball alive and mm. um, not, not setting up the next phase. So you're constantly looking for second and third touches. And we played Morley Touch all the time. Yeah. When I think about it, and um, uh, you know, I play hybrids of that type of game uh, all the time as well. And I think a lot of it's been my philosophy been shaped by by that time in my career. Yeah. No, and so the other thing, so the other thing that would mm. really would have shaped it would have been there's a coach Brian Ashton, I'm sure you've heard yeah, of, of course, coach yeah. and uh, he he was uh, a big influence on me um, during my time as academy manager. We got great. Development as academy managers, we'd go on 
coaching courses and we'd all sit down with each other. And Brian was running the academy at the time, Junior National Academy in England. And he would come and stimulate and challenge us to be more creative as coaches. And I do yeah, think hit that period as well. Um, and I was coaching the academy at the time. So this was, you know, between the ages of 13 and 35, yeah. again, where games, the results mattered, but they didn't, you know, didn't win you a trophy or, you know, you weren't going to get sacked if you lost. Mm. Um, and uh, you could experiment a lot with talented 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. So I think all that sort of helped shape my philosophy, which ultimately has resulted in um, bringing that through to Leinster, where there is a very talented group of players who can deliver it. Yeah, no, no doubt. Cool. Um, you, you touched on the loss against Saracens in the in the uh, Heineken Cup final. What what were some of the main lessons that, that that you took away from that as a coach, and and how did you try to uh, you know correct them in a in a fairly short turnaround for the Pro Fourteen final? Uh, well, yeah, no, it was a short turnaround. I mean, we lost on the Saturday, um, <clears throat> and then um, we had Munster the following Saturday in the semi-final. Mm. So it wasn't just a matter of you know getting to Glasgow; it was a matter oh, of beating true, our, yeah, yeah. our closest rivals at the mm. RDS. So yeah, um, yeah. So obviously, the first thing you've got to deal with on, on on any defeat as a coach is work out in your own mind what went wrong and what the solutions are to that that problem because the players are still dealing with the defeat, the dealing with their own individual performance within that mm. uh, and all the you know, friends and family and all that sort of stuff's going on in the mind on the Sunday. Um, so so my job as a coach, I think, is to is to explain the defeat and, and try and give them solutions to why we didn't win and then turn that around in a short space of time into a positive so that we can move on and mm-hmm. take the learn without dragging it around us and then go on to prepare to play Munster and then play Glasgow, which obviously ultimately we won both. So, um, I mean, the big thing obviously for me in the Saracens was two things really. One was um, I felt that with a 10-0 head start, we put ourselves in a good position and we gave them access back in the game, um, uh, which I think we could have controlled a little bit better. Mm. Um, uh the second was three areas actually. Second area was we um, we I don't think we created the game of movement enough. When you're playing against a team like Saracens who are so strong defensively, if you play the game between the two 15 meter lines, then um, it becomes very easy for their big fellas to yeah. come off a line and whacking you behind the game line. Mm. Um, you know you need to create a game of movement by taking the ball outside of that, those those two channels. And I don't think we had opportunity to do that, and we talked about doing it, but I don't think we actually delivered that as well as we could have done. Um, and then within that, there's also a third area of um, taking on the line and seeing space. You know, some teams are very, very good at taking the line on, but often, you know, there is they miss opportunities on the edges. And I think we we were playing, um, particularly the start of the second half, uh, playing well. You know, we, it was 10 all at half time. Obviously, the game management piece, you know, could, we could have ended the game 10-3 up. We could have... Um, perhaps called a different starter play when they had Mario Joe didn't bin. Mm. Uh, but, but the um, the start of the second half we started well and we had opportunities. We had a five on two um, uh, that we didn't take. You know we we took the light on when the space was on the edge, and there was a uh, uh, almost in the same sequence actually uh, another opportunity on the same in the same vicinity that we didn't take. And I think they're the big moments that you have to take in the yeah. in the big game. Allowed Saracens. Uh, belief and access back in the game and um, obviously once they got a lead uh, that close to the game finishing 
it was always going to be very difficult to to claw that back. Um, and and you know they one or two refereeing decisions that all you know we 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 didn't agree with that cost us. Um, but that often happens in big games, unfortunately. You know, I've, I've know from bitter experience. You know, you can have all the plans and all the you know all the right intentions, but sometimes um, you don't you don't always get that subjective decision that you need. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's going to be interesting with the Rugby World Cup with the with the new uh, tackle laws that have been pretty heavily uh, officiated yeah, in, yeah, the, in the what's, under twenties under level. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the under twenties? You sit there thinking, geez, I mean, the games <laughs> oh. must be lasting. The games must be lasting like I don't know how long because there's so many mm. stoppages in time now, and obviously yeah. you know yellow cards and red cards uh, prevalent, very prevalent. So yeah, yeah it's uh, be interesting to see if they yeah referee with the same level of I'm not sure actually is the right word, you know, the same level of detail that they're currently doing in the twenties because, you know, um you know, if a player if if a player drops his hips and he's caught the ball and someone ends up, you know, slightly higher than they ordinarily would have done, then you're looking at a yellow if not a red. Yeah. No, it's and it, I I think of it like, you know, guys from our generation playing, we wouldn't be on the field. <laughs> we wouldn't have been able to stay on the field. What? I watched the under twenty game at the weekend. Then I watched the state of origin. And I <laughs> yeah, thought, exactly. my God, you know, every tackle in that game would have been a yellow card or red card. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a challenge, and I just uh, you know hope that it's not going to have a you know a, a major impact in the in the outcome of some pretty important games coming up. Yeah, I suspect yeah. there will be some. Yeah. For sure. Okay. Well, yeah. Um. You, once you once you were in the Pro Fourteen final, what was the kind of uh, the mindset going into that week leading up to the 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 final against Glasgow? And you know, how did you kind of what strategies did you employ there? Probably more psychologically to to you know push past the Heineken Cup uh, disappointment and and be open and positive about the the exciting challenge of a Pro Fourteen final. Well, yeah. I think I think psychologically we'd overcome. Saracen's defeat by beating Munster, you know, so that was the big yeah. challenge was that way. When you're in a final, you know, you, you're pretty disappointed as a coach, you know, having worked out so hard all year that you've got to psychologically try and get the players in the right place. So there was no psychological challenge, really. Um, we were excited about going up to try and win the title away from home. Mm. Um, Leinster have won the Pro 14 five times, but all in Dublin. Mm. So we wanted that challenge, you know, yeah. we wanted it. Glasgow were obviously in the home city, there was 40 odd thousand. Um, the challenge was, you know, Dave Rennie's a highly good, highly qualified and, yeah. and very good coach. And he, his team, you know, probably the second highest try scorers behind us. So mm. the big challenge was dealing with their attack, to be honest, because of the, the quality and the way in which they construct their attack, their variety of um, ways in which they exit from their own half, the... Uh, they, they do a lot of sweet plays where they've got Stuart Hall back on the inside. So yeah. Stuart Hall yeah. and Adam Hastings were very, very good together. Um, very, very combative pack and and tough. You know, he talks about uh, brutality, I think, uh, is one of his phrases. And, you know, they're a very competitive team to play against. So the big thing for me leading into the game was actually defence um, because I, I believed if we got our defence right, we could create problems in our attack. Now, unfortunately for, for the occasion, it was raining on the day. So that that had a bearing on on how much rugby either team could play, yeah. um, but we got our noses in front. I think on a wet day like that, um, that was that was probably the difference. And um, but the, the most pleasing thing really was was our defence. If I'm being honest, that was the 
the bit where we're doing a whole lot of work on on shutting them down and we got a charge down try as well which was yeah. rewarding yeah. you know we'd scouted we'd scouted that and that was the so, first one yeah 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 so there was, there was lots of little things and then a game you know you can always look back in a game and think we could have done this better could have done that better but I've never coached in a game that's perfect anyway so mm. we did enough to win and um, I thought we on the day we, we deserved it not by much and uh, it was a great way to finish the season yeah awesome Okay, well, onto onto some stuff you're doing outside of Leinster. You're you're producing some like excellent content for coaches and and leaders in general on the topic of leadership. Uh, I've been going through a bunch of them on on your LinkedIn page, and uh, they're extremely valuable uh, for me, but not you know for coaches in general. What what's the general goal there for putting out that material from your end? It was interesting. It actually started with a, a mate of mine who who had a set up a company and he'd created this platform for uh, for someone to put content on and create their own little website, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I arrived at Leinster, um, I was living away from home. You know, lots of evenings where you're on your own, wife and kids are in Leeds. So, mm-hmm. so I thought, well, I might as well go down this route of trying to create some content and share the content. So. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I did that. So I created a leadership club and I created a coaching club. Um, and uh, it's quite hard to create an online leadership content, I've come to the conclusion, because it's easy when you are, it's not easy, but you know, if you're asked to do a leadership talk to a group of coaches, you're actually there with them. You can show the slides, you can talk about experiences and this and that. But when you're doing it to a virtual audience, um, I wasn't really sure how to do it. So, anyway, so what I decided to do was, I created um, uh, five or six modules, of which I had five or six presentations in each, which lasts about 10 minutes in, in, in total. And I would basically talk over the top of them. And I found a way to sort of capture the me talking over the top of a PowerPoint. So it's pretty mm-hmm. rough and ready, to be honest. But um, um, it worked. So I managed to get the content. The coaching club was a lot more challenging because uh, I didn't realize, but you can't obviously just take footage and put it online because it's copyrighted of, you know, X competition or Y competition. Mm-hmm. So there was there was stuff I had of me coaching. Um, but I, I mean, bear in mind, this is my um, I've got a full-time job, you know what I mean? So I didn't have time to go and get loads of videos of me coaching different school teams and, you know, different ideas. So that was a real challenge, the coaching club one. So I left that. And uh, anyway, the leadership club, um, what I soon realized as well was in order to sort of get these things off the ground, you need a website. So you've got to pay for a website. That takes some time. Mm. And then it's not really on the website, the content of the website. But then then you start there thinking, well, no one knows it's there. So then you've got to market it. Mm. So to market it, you need to be on, as well, you probably know this better yeah, than me. You need exactly. to be on social media. You need to be on Facebook and LinkedIn and, you know, Twitter and all this sort of stuff. And I yeah. wasn't interested in in being on those forums and also I was rubbish at marketing it was my own stuff so my wife's a marketer so she helps me out oh well, there you go maybe I have to speak to her because yeah. um I uh, so I ended up shelving all the content anyway after about a year I thought you know I've still got this content perhaps I should just share it anyway and, and rather than try and monetize it you know put it put it out on LinkedIn for free so that's what I did so basically I put some I put the content on uh, LinkedIn uh, and I put one on a week, and I'm up to the last week now, actually, um, is next week. So that's the last one. So that's been one a week since uh, January. Awesome. Um, but while I was doing it, the guy, um, a guy contacted me and said, why haven't you put it on Udemy? So Udemy, U-D-E-M-Y.com, that's, it's a bit like what I've just described. It's a portal where people put online content. And if you want to learn how to, I don't know, 
do salsa dancing, you go on Udemy and Google and, and type in salsa dancing, and it comes up with loads of people who will teach you salsa dancing. And you basically pay, you pay uh, to access that online content. Mm. Now, the way it works on Udemy is that you um, you put your price, what your your content is going to cost, and they invariably, obviously discount it in order to entice people to buy and they get a mm. share of it. So I put I put all my content on there. So it's all on there at the moment, actually. Mm. Um, so if you play your cards right and you go on udb.com and Google it, um, you should be able to get it for 10.99, um, awesome. the whole of it. So it's only a tenner, really. Yeah. Um, uh, if you get your timing wrong, you can pay 149, but <laughs> now I'm giving <laughs> the game away. I don't think anyone will do that. All right. Uh, so it's all, on, it's all on Udemy. And then... Um, it's on LinkedIn also, obviously, but um, uh, it's been interesting the Udemy one because uh, as as you put on leadership content, then um, so my, if you Google leadership on Udemy, mm. my course is I don't ranked ninety first or something, and like miles behind the first one. Mm. But the more that people are, um, go on the course, the more people do reviews, the more it sort of rises up the rankings. It's a bit yeah. like Google. Yeah. So um, it's gradually begun to rise up and people have bought it. And then what's been fascinating is on a daily basis, someone from India, someone from India signed up today, mm. someone from New Zealand yesterday, someone from South Africa the day before, Australia, um, some former players have, have signed up, I've noticed them. And I can sort of, um, I'm there to sort of help them with messaging or connection, you know, ideas if they ask, come back with the other stuff. So that's been really good. I've really enjoyed that actually. That sort of just watching it grow across the world. It's not, you know, it's not grown massively to be honest, mm. but it's still grown. It's nice to see that people are accessing and learning from what I've learned. Yeah. Um, and then, um, so I think what I'll do is I'm, I'm going to go down that route and then I'm going to uh, do a second series, if you like, um, of further things that I've learned since then. And and I do think that coaching club has merit as well you know i obviously know you're speaking to rugby coaches on your podcast you know it's something i would uh i always search out you know any content that we can like an access to help me become mm. a better coach yeah but I you know hopefully the leadership stuff yeah you've said it's of interest a lot of people give me positive feedback so it's there if people are interested yeah it's great no definitely i'll put the uh the udemy link uh in the yeah. show notes so so people can dig that up and uh yeah i'll definitely uh, get stuck into that as well all right, Stuart, we always uh, end, the, end the show with the same final four questions. When you were a kid growing up in Leeds, uh, who was one of the favourite players that you looked up to? Uh, Peter Winterbottom. Okay, so yeah. So the, the open side for England. So I was an open yeah. side, um, and he was a headingly player, uh, and he was playing for England at the time. And he would be, yeah, Jean-Pierre Reeves as well. I like Jean-Pierre Reeves, yeah. um, another blonde open side. So, yeah. Uh, uh, they, Always they covered in blood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they were mentioned. <laughs> yeah, cool. Excellent. Both uh, they've been mentioned before from uh, former guests as well, both of those. So that's cool. Um, again, what about now? Question two. Who, who are some of the players that you, you you start getting excited about when you when you see them um, with the ball in hand or about to make a tackle? Um, well, there's loads. Jeez. Um, uh, I love Bowden Barrett. Yep. Um, uh, I'd love to coach him and uh, yeah, I think he's a fantastic player obviously I'm very lucky to have coached Stone Farrell and Johnny Sexton mm. um, both of whom I would put in the top bracket of players I've coached um, some of the really excited players at Leinster at the moment you know, Gary Ringrose For Robbie sure. Henshaw James mm. Ryan you know they're they're outstanding Jordan Lama you know outstanding young player 
Um, so there's some brilliant, you know, but there's some equally, you know, when I go back through the players I capped with England, whether it be Billy Vanapola or mm. JJ, John and Joseph or Anthony Watson or Jack Noel, um, very lucky, like I say, very lucky to have um, coached many great players and coached against them. Um, uh, who else? Um, yeah, you just love to come to coach. I'd love to coach in New Zealand, um, also in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia as well, you mm. know, included. Because you look at them and you just think, you know, you could, yeah, you just love to have the opportunity to coach players of that quality. I look at the Crusaders when I watch them play. Mm. Uh, you'd love to have a game against them as well, you know, yeah. uh, a lens oh, versus epic. Crusaders would be the dream. Yeah, make it happen. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just gonna just gonna sort out the global season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, and uh, third question: What about what about coaches, high profile coaches that you look up to and uh, respect what they're doing? Um, well, I'd say Brian Ashton, obviously, when I was yeah. a young coach, I think he he obviously had a big influence on my career. Um, Wayne Smith, uh, yeah. very fortunate to build a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And you know, I remember one time I went, I was in New Zealand, and he, I stayed at his house, and we went for a walk, and we got talking about the game, and. You know his his knowledge and experience, not just of um, the game, but also culture and identity, and and uh, so he'd be he'd be right up there definitely. Um, but again, you know, you go you go through the you know when you're an England coach or certainly in Leinster now, you know the coaches that you've coached against, high regard for all of them. You know, it's not an easy profession to be in. Um, and uh, the beauty of rugby is that there's so many different ways to win the game, and uh, um, you know. Dave Rennie does it brilliantly. Wayne Pivot did a great job at Scarlets last year. Yeah, we were playing against them. Absolutely. Um, obviously, Mark McCall at Saracens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Rob Baxter at Exeter, you know, and I took uh, Ali Heifer and Rob Hunter, what they've done there. Um, some of the French teams, Toulouse, who we played this year, were outstanding. Yeah, I mean, they, they were, were yeah. a completely different game and, you know, they were full respect for their coaching team and how they uh, prepared and um, the list goes on. So, yeah, yeah there's... Those. Yeah, and final question: What about someone uh, with uh, you know maybe working uh, under the radar with without the profile of some of those coaches who, who's doing great work around your area? Say again, so so like a so, development coach? Yeah, yeah, someone who doesn't have that high profile and yeah deserves a shout um, out. Yeah, again, I think I think there's lots of talented young coaches. I'm, I was lucky in that um i managed to be in the right place at the right time and mm. gravitate from that sort of teacher to to national coach and obviously now here at leinster and um you know i needed to be in the right place at the right time but i was fortunate that people gave me as a young coach an opportunity yeah. so you know i mean no matmara who coaches uh, alan 20s um okay. he, he's doing a job here at leinster and yeah. he's done a great job in the 20s you oh, know winning the, yeah they were good yeah winning, uh, winning the grand slam um mm. there's loads of like young coaches in in England, and one of the, one of the most uh, rewarding things now, not that I'm getting old, but um, <laughs> uh, is that players who I used to coach have now become coaches. Yeah, it's great, eh? Uh, and that's a rewarding part of the job where you, you're building relationships, but building relationships back with players you've coached and helping them become better coaches. And now that's something really um, I'm excited about doing in the future. You know, uh, and I'd love to when I finish coaching is help coaches become better coaches. So you can look me up in 10 years to however long it's going to be. Uh, and uh, I'm more than happy coming to talk about coaching as long as you want. Um, so yeah, so there's, there's lots, there's lots, there's lots of them um, around the world really. But uh, um, some of the guys in Leinster, some of the, some of the coaching in the Leinster school system is very strong as well. You know, that's 
there's a reason why uh, Leinster produced so much homegrown talent, and it's quality, you know, it's quality of the coaching in the um, in the pathway. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. All right, great. Well, it's been awesome chatting with you. I know you're busy right now with uh, with preseason, so I really appreciate you giving up uh, a, a little window of your day uh, to talk. And um, yeah, we'll definitely be watching Leinster's progress uh, with interest. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Okay, mate. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Perfect. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. Also follow us via Twitter at RugbyCoachesCNR or via the website therugbycoachescorner.com. Until next time, keep sharing ideas to make the game better.